Hello, my name is Jocelyn LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about the Dardenne Brothers. That's right. Festival Month finally concludes with the Kings of Khan. Between 1999 and 2011, here are the prizes they won. Two Palm Doors for Rosetta and L'Enfant. Best Actor, Olivier Gourmet for, for The Sun. Best Screenplay for Lorna's Silence. Grand Prix for The Kid with the Bike. Then, their 2014 film, No Awards. No Awards? That was Two Days, One Night. But then, more recently, they won Best Director for Young Ahmed in 2019. And then, won the 75th anniversary prize for their last movie, Tori and Lokita, in 2017. So, more often than not, almost every time, they win something. Now, what's surprising about their filmography is that, looking at it, I assume that, boy, they've just been cranking them out forever. But when you talk about the ones that have been winning awards, or the ones that have getting them critical attention, you have one, two, three... Four, five, six, seven, eight, only nine, which doesn't seem that much in the grand scheme of things. But man, per capita. Yeah. You know. They've been, they were kicking around for a long time, making documentaries in the late 70s and two feature films before they finally found the specific voice that we're going to talk about today. But you know, when they won the Palm d'Or in 1999 for Rosetta, that was considered actually a very controversial win at the time. How come? So I have an article here by Roger Ebert from 1999. Uh, the headline is Con Winners, A Strange Crew. The survivors of the 52nd Con Film Festival met at the Nice airport on Monday like applicants for an emergency airlift. The carnage of the award ceremony was still fresh in our minds. <laughs> so the, the Oh God, we were just ravaged by this year's con choice made by people need to remember the con is just a jury of random people that pick movies. That's right. So the head of the jury was David Cronenberg that year, and it was considered a very arty list of movies. Mm. Where is the Shreks, if you will? Usually the awards reflect the tastes of at least some well-informed members of the audience. Not this year. At last Sunday's award ceremony, the audience reacted action moved from incredulity to booze and outrage and finally an outright demonstration when the single popular choice was announced spain's pedro almodovar for best director the audience gave him a standing ovation and then best of all he says cronenberg's jury gave the coveted palm d'Or to rosetta a small belgian film unseen by me about a disturbed young girl whose mother is an alcoholic she lives in a trailer and moves from job to job fighting to avoid her mother's fate it may be a fine film. Ken Turin of the Los Angeles Times calls it heartbreaking and uplifting, but few even saw it. So basically what Roger Ebert is saying is, why did they not award the big films that will get people to read the articles that we're writing about the Cannes Film Festival? Yeah, and, he, and he's quoting in there like Todd McCarthy, who is like writes for Variety and was really shocked. This shows you like how the like Harvey Weinstein Industrial Complex just had a stranglehold on film culture mm. in like circa 1999. So it's kind of like the con jury that year did what they were supposed to do and watch the films that were in you know the competition and pick the ones that they liked the most yeah now of course by the time like the Dardans had their next movie and they were made mad now, now they are con you know mm, now they are con yeah. although you know they've kind of I've got the sense in recent years that they've fallen out of fashion a little bit well I think maybe a little bit because you know people go see the movies and they go hmm they're still playing the song, eh? Yeah, there's, there's, there is a little bit of that. I mean, Young Ahmed, their 2019 movie, despite that Best Director Prize, is at 59% on Rotten Tomatoes Well, now. I mean, I haven't seen the movie. Have you? No, I haven't. So from what I know, you know what the hype was, though. Yeah, the issue is like, are they the ones to tell this specific story that is painting, you know, this, let's just say, character in a negative light? Questions of Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. Right. And I I haven't seen seen the movie. I haven't seen it. I couldn't tell 
value. I do know that it came out at a at a moment when Islamophobia was a particularly like mm-hmm. you know height of the Trump era. Et cetera, now, et cetera. did I think watching these movies? Who are these guys to make these films? Did you think that? I did think it, yes. Especially that they are the made men of the Cannes Film Festival, right? I, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, if you look at their career, they did kind of cycle through the pretentious, like, oh boy, this sucks, like first narrative feature film. Yeah, so I rolled into this week with a big old chip on my shoulder oh. because, you know, I saw these movies as they were coming out, you know, dutifully, and hadn't seen any of them more than once. And there was part of me that was exactly like you, where it's like, yeah, you know, every couple of years they come to con and, you know, the the hoity-toity audiences, the rich people look at these stories of a working class strife and they all pat themselves on the back. Who are they to make these kind of films? Yeah. And, you know, I remembered the fact that, yeah, all the movies are kind of similar and they're all sort of unpleasant to watch. But And so I came in, I came in ready to, you know, tear these guys down, especially mm. given that they're a little unfair fashionable now i liked these movies now what's interesting about (laughs) it being unfashionable is that the style that they're doing in the early 90s also became a definitive style into the 2000s that everybody was doing this well yeah i mean when rosetta came out it is funny, you read those articles from Khan at the time, and they all have this tone of like, you're not going to believe how arty this movie is. It's like, handheld camera, no diegetic music. Scene basically plays out in one take. That's how they do their movies. Yeah, yeah no famous people. It's 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 foreign. It's Belgian, for God's sake. I mean, that is sub-French. How yeah. dare they? And it's it's about poor people, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Know, where, where are the... Th- this is as arty as it gets. But now, yeah, you're right. Like, there are Dardenne's exploitation movies but at the same time it's like these are techniques that in some ways has been co-opted by like the frigging office because it became (laughs) reality tv you know following someone and you're just like over their shoulder it's sometimes close up well it's like pseudo documentary yeah exactly yeah Uh, and that's what all of these movies are but they're doing it in an immediate way that you know it is pseudo documentary but i think that it is so pointed in the the technique that they use that i think it goes beyond being like you're in the moment it's virite into something much more confrontational so another reason why i had a bit of a chip on my shoulder this week and i do want to say again i like these filmmakers i think i was proven wrong but there's there's a sort of idea in these movies of like almost like self-abnegation in watching them. It's like, we're not giving you any of the niceties of cinema, you know? You're not getting backstories. You're not getting... You're, you're not, not get, even getting any music, man. You're not getting music. Like, the the lighting is shit, and the, the handheld camera is, like, right up against these people. Yeah, you just want to pull back, but you can't, because all you got is that character's face and, right in your screen. And as an audience member, you're going to suffer a little bit, and that suffering is inherently virtuous, because look at these people on screen and the terrible lives they're living. Like, like so, you have to suffer along with them to some degree now i don't necessarily disagree with what i'm saying Mm. but i also think these movies have like pleasures that they offer as well yeah and there's like there's a great power in these movies i don't think these movies are as nihilistic as it sounds the way that you're describing it no and in fact i do think there is a kind of like the the formal rigor of them has has rewards Mm -hmm. now did i think watching these movies is it only rich people that are going to watch these Yes, that crossed my mind. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, I do think they are accessible to to Very accessible. anyone with an open heart and an open mm-hmm. mind. They're uh, all like sub hundred minutes as well. They're not long, and mm-hmm. that like some of them that we watched have very clear messages that when you go away from it, like films don't usually tackle this kind of stuff in a complex way, just because 
how do you get a satisfying story out of some of these things that you're witnessing? But, you know, the story, the stories of like the travails of the working class and the sub working class, you know, some of the people in, in these movies live in really abject poverty that may have more novelty to a, you know, a, mm. a, a more, a more well-heeled audience. Yes. Yeah. So they walk away from it going, you know what? I will let my workers unionize. Well, that is for the, the good thing. I, well, I mean, the movies are not also like politically prescriptive. Exactly. Mm. I don't know what the Dardenne's like politics are. I, I'm sure they're on the left. Yeah, definitely on the left. Yeah. Cause they like did organize a thing that would pay out for filmmakers like Ken Loach to make movies oh, and fantastic. things like that. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about Rosetta, which is I think the earliest one that we all watched. Okay. So I, I actually really like this movie. Now, what shocked me the most about this film is the star Emily Dickend. Do you know what the next movie that she made right after this? Christoph, Christoph Gans Brotherhood of the Wolf, where she plays the main love interest in the film. Oh, wow. So that was a big kind of, of the way that she appears in this film versus the way that she appears in that film. And she plays, I mean, the movie opens as almost all the Dardenne movies do kind of in media res. She's working at this job where she's hoping to get some sort of extension in the job, but instead she's fired. Every one of these Dardenne films almost all start with like the character rushing through the scene and you're following them and you're not quite sure what's going on, but that you know that a point of conflict is going to set this story off. They're both narratively and visually disorienting at the start mm -hmm. because the camera can barely keep up with the characters. The tempo is often established by the physical actions of the characters who are just like going through the daily motions of just like working and living and going from one thing to another. And then you're invited to sort of like try to keep up with them. And the characters don't reveal themselves. The stories don't reveal themselves. Well, they the reveal themselves through the actions right. that you're witnessing, but because you're always starting right in the middle of it, that needs to kind of, you know, clarify itself for the audience as the films play on. And so she's fired from this job early on. She lives in a trailer with her alcoholic mother that she takes care of. Yeah. But she's also, you get the sense at the end of the rope that they've gone through this over and over and over again. And she keeps playing through these cycles. The mother, you know, sometimes turn, turns tricks for money, which sort of adds to the you know humiliation of, of her daily life. And what you realize as you're watching the film is that this is not a film. I mean, this is an element of it that she needs money to live, et cetera, et cetera. But what you get is that this character, Rosetta, is defining herself through her jobs to give normalcy to her own life. Mm -hmm. That she's in such chaos that having a job gives her a structure that makes her feel sound. But because, you know, the job market friggin' sucks, even in 1999 when this movie comes out, she cannot hold on to a job. And not because of her actions, but just because of the way that like, you know, bosses can fire someone, replace them with their son because it's easier to do. And Rosetta, oftentimes when these things happen to her, she does react violently being like, why can't I keep this job? I didn't do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. Did you see that in France, they passed a law like the Rosetta law about job safety based on this movie? I did hear that. Is that actually true? Was yep. that? Yeah. yeah or, I, I, you know, it was put through the system, even though that the Dardenne brothers are like, listen, through our movies, we don't want to, you know, change things or anything like that. Do, did they, do did they say that? They did say that. And I say, screw you. You should be making movies. Not because, you know, you expect to change, but you would hope some change that that's what you put out into the world. Yeah. I mean, who knows why they said that? Maybe they were worried about their funding. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, oh, we don't want to make too many political provocations well i mean i look at these movies and like they're not like politically radical movies but like what movies are i mm. mean like and who even cares if they are it's like these but are movies they putting are... forward i mean not rosetta specifically but like some of the especially the last one that we're going to talk about you know 
politically radical ideas in that what working and representing your coworker means in the grand scheme of things. I don't know if I'd call these movies politically radical. I mean, I mean, they're just sort of like depictions of, I mean, they're, they're, they're artworks. They're complicated. I mean, the, the lead characters in most of these movies are quite flawed. Mm. I don't know if you watched L'Enfant. Yes, I did. Okay. I mean, like that's one where that's their second Palm Door winner where like the main guy basically like pawns off his newborn son, you know, and then spends the rest of the movie trying to get the kid back. Mm-hmm. And of course the title is like slightly ironic because right, who's who's the real Lafont? Yeah, who is the real child at the end of this and, movie? And you know, Rosetta is anything but a cuddly character. No, she's very kind of harsh and she makes difficult decisions that if you were watching the movie, you'd go, wait, why did she do that? That is not what a good person in quotes would do within the context of this. So I mean, I would rather, like I'd, I'd rather have a good movie than a politically radical one. If oh, that, if Will making a large claim. No, I know what you mean. You know. But uh, like a politically <laughs> radical in presenting ideas that other films don't usually deal with mm-hmm. and you have to confront why is it this way? Right. Like it's not just because, oh, you know, the world, if we just tighten our straps and we'd be able to get through this. Uh, it's like bad bosses and shit like that. Well, I mean, uh, some of it I think is implicit in the setting of these films. I'm anything but an expert on Belgian politics, but I know that they are. <laughs> well, I am being Belgian <laughs> myself. Last name to clue. I know that they're set in the Wallonia region, which is an area that has, you know, much in common with the American Rust Belt in the sense that it's once this industrial center where the factories all closed. Now the employment is so much higher and what's left behind is a lot of like gray concrete and very little like social cohesion. So, you know, that that's like, if you understand that, I mean, this area could be like many areas all around the world where just like the manufacturing is gone and people are scraping by for themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we we drive through it every time we go to the United States and we're like, look at these ghost towns all over the place. Or in Canada, too. Not like here, which no, is just, just which is perfect. Great, just booming. Uh, Ontario open for business, as our tagline is. But I liked Rosetta a lot because, I mean, first of all, I found it, I don't know if exciting is the right word, but I found it propulsive. I mean, all of their films are propulsive in some way. Even, Even the- even if scenes, you don't know what's going on. Right. Even the scenes like towards the end where she's just like carrying like, you know, gas tanks, you mm. know, f- like across the muddy field. There's a, but there's an innate tension in everything that she does just because we often jump in the middle of it and the camera's so tight and like in her face, that's almost indicating that there is something that is imposing itself on her. It was about to burst outside of the frame and attack her, whether it be like literally or just figuratively. I also like how little you get, at least in explicit terms, about her interior life or her, her personality. It's like there's there's almost not much... L- there isn't the luxury of having that. It's just, I mean, I do think you learn a lot about her as the movie goes on, but it's never really stated. It's just you learn about her through like the constant forward motion of her life. I I, I respect the uncompromising way that the character is drawn. Even though that Rosetta, I think, out of all the ones that we watch, is probably one of the most punishing ones because you just see a cycle play itself out mm-hmm. without any finality or any change in what she's going through and at the end she ends up almost more broken than it began even though that she made choices in her view to try to improve things yeah but like i say i mean it feels like a truthful film Mm -hmm. and there is a constant like forward motion to it that just starts to break down a little bit at the very end yeah and like you sense it almost revving up again well it's like we're gonna see rosetta 2 we're gonna go through all of these situations all over again will she ever be able to let's do it (laughs) yeah that's what it's called rosetta 2 more 
more waffles, which this film is filled with. And I was like, mmm, waffles looks good. Yeah. As this character's crawling through the misery of her own life. Now, they returned to the festival circuit in 2002, three years later with The Sun. And they're like, don't worry, people. This one's it's a little happier, if you will. Yeah, I guess it's a little happier. A li- well, yeah, where characters are making decisions that, while subdued in the way that they're executed, do lead to perhaps... Redemption, a little bit of forgiveness. forgiveness. Yes. So the main character, played by Olivier Gourmet, and formally the movie is, if anything, even more rigorous than... I love that phrase, formal rigor. You see <laughs> yeah. that all the time. It feels... Uh, you're, you're putting down that the artists behind this are making choices, and they're sticking to those choices. That's exactly right. Like the camera, you basically don't see the front of his face very much. No, you usually see the back of his thick eyeglasses the entire time. And you're just following around and around and around, and he's like a woodworking instructor who teaches at a rehab center and you know a lot of uh, wayward youth you mm-hmm. know are in his classes and, and this is a film that when it starts you're like what is going on because a lot of woodwork you see this character a new kid comes and this teacher becomes obsessed with this new kid and you're like is he a pedophile is he a serial killer why is he obsessed with this kid all right if you haven't seen it Fast forward 30 seconds. Even if you look at IMDb, we'll spoil it for you because I believe it's in the summary of the of yeah. the film. Just watch this movie, but fast forward 30 seconds. The kid killed his son mm. some years ago and spent time in, you know, juvenile hall. For yeah, it. I think four or five years. So you have all of this nothing in the first part. And then you have this explosive piece of information. Which is dropped off almost casually by his ex-wife. Right. And it's ruined both their lives. It's ruined their marriage. He is taking it like a day at a time he has this woodworking job just to keep himself busy i think it's the only thing that keeps him sane because you see his apartment which is just like a cot on the ground and no furniture at all so you have this piece of information that just like radically changes everything you've seen and then changes the next hour of the movie because this man is interacting with this kid in a way that he even vocalizes to someone i don't know why i'm doing this right and the movie is called the sun Partly because like this, this kid almost becomes a surrogate son mm-hmm. for him. But then there's also this tension throughout of like, well, what's, what is he going to do? What's he going to do? Is yeah. he going to, is he going to get revenge? So like the last 30 minutes is almost a suspenseful. You know, suspenseful because they go out alone to like a woodworking place and they're supposedly for him to teach this kid how to do this stuff. And you're like, is he going to kill him? What is he going to do? Is he going to reveal what he knows? How is this going to play out? And I like the minimalism of the movie. I like that just one piece of information can like... Destabilize everything? Yeah, and burden every action of the movie. I think it takes great confidence on the part of the Dardans to... to to try and experiment. I love that that this kid is exactly the kind of kid you would expect in this situation that like, he's not very, you know, he doesn't emote that much. Like he's nice, but Mm. you know, he's also, you see he's damaged, you know, from all the stuff that he's gone through. He doesn't want to talk about any of that. He doesn't Mm. want to open himself up. He doesn't want to let people in. And that when he finally reveals what he did, he doesn't present it in a way like, Oh, woe is me. He does it in a manner of, I just don't want to talk about it. Like, let's keep moving. Mm -hmm. And that like the actions that he did were not, you know, emotionally charged. It was just something that happened in the moment. Mm -hmm. It scarred his entire life. And now he's trying to get past it. Mm -hmm. There's like little lines when the kid turns to his teacher and he's like, can you be my guardian? And you're like, oh, it hurts so much based on the information that we know. Yeah. And I like that the movie doesn't end. I mean, there are notes of like 
forgiveness or hope or moving on or moving on is probably the more accurate one because it kind of ends with the issues unresolved but the issues are unresolvable yeah like there's there's never going to be like oh we're going to hug everything will be forgiven right because human beings don't really do that in real life so it's about finding ways to continue going on bring back the dad no exactly so i found that's probably the one i like the most out of all the ones that i watch yeah mostly because of the minimalism and that kind of suspense i mean these are all suspenseful films all the darden films are taking these situations and they're like and this how is, is going to yeah, play out this is what i'd forgotten about these movies actually because i hadn't seen one in a while i'd forgotten that kind of you only need the edge of your seat <laughs> when yeah, you're watching yeah. them. i mean what i remembered is like the the ugly gray palette of them and the sort of i mean they're not purely exercises in miserableism well i think that when you probably filter the dardan and what you remembered about them you slotted them into like ugh, the nothing happening art house film where we're capturing look at these people in poverty aren't they miserable when there's a propulsion to these films that defines you know their filmmaking style i mean certainly la font is like this too it's Mm. basically like a long chase movie it's another movie that has one like completely destabilizing piece of information early on and then there's there's just this chase for the rest of it hey let's get to a movie though that has stars in it that i recognize like two days one night okay yeah tell them what this one's about this was kind of this is probably their most like popular movie Mm -hmm. she got marion cotillard got best actress nomination for it all she had to do was take that makeup off and they're like finally a big star presence on screen doing what i will just say this movie to me suffered in comparison to the other ones right after rosetta now what's interesting about this film is that they seem to be pulling back their style a little bit to be a little bit more tasteful it's, it's for prettier yes. there are moments in it that almost look like midnight in paris or something the, the camera that, is that not sheen. right in the character's faces the entire time the lighting is quite good mm-hmm. it, i mean first of all it looks like there is artificial lighting mm, oh you think so i don't know i didn't look enough probably into it. or a little bit of post-production like i don't know it's just too sunny it doesn't look like the other one the plot for this one is marion katiaf plays a worker who learns that she's being let go because her job had a vote that the people could could take a bonus or she would come back to work and everyone would get a bonus of a thousand euros and they took a vote and they voted to get rid of her but she says please just give me one weekend to try to do it again and let them take a secret vote so it's her going from one person to the next trying to campaign basically and it should be clear as well that katia's character has been through an emotional thing that they describe as a sickness and that like she has issues in her own life she's trying to deal with and this destabilizing thing like she feels like it's the end if she isn't able to keep this job to keep living so i think this movie is good i think marianne cotillard is excellent but i will say again suffers in comparison to the other ones because maybe just because marianne like marianne cotillard's almost too good mm-hmm. like rosetta you're, you're like i see those ticks play well out. the thing is i do yeah you know and maybe that's fine on its own but when i see it right after rosetta where the lead actress I believe was not professional before Mm -hmm. she's done stuff since, but there's a kind of rawness. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. The, the, the fact that the character is so closed off, and you have to bring you have to project a lot you know what i'll say about this movie is that it gives you everything you would expect from this premise including an ending that you're like that's a little too pat for my taste well i also think this too because i feel like you know the other ones as i say are propulsive and there's a sort of unpredictable quality to them and a constant forward motion two days one night feels schematic to me Mm, it feels like i know what i know what every scene is going to be in fact you've told me in advance what every scene is going to be you told me you're going to go through like 
a certain number of people and I can already guess what their reactions are going to be. Mm-hmm. One's going to be like this. One's going to be like this. One's going to be like this. So when you saw it play out, you were like, all right, I already know this. So it doesn't have the immediacy that I want from these films. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good. It's good. Yeah. It works exactly the way it's meant to work, even though that you're losing that edge. But how long can they have that edge with the style that they have? Isn't there at a certain point they do have to kind of evolve it a little bit? Well, and I think that that is what this movie is. Mm-hmm. It's an attempt to make a slicker, you know, like more of a melodrama honestly yeah. like you can imagine you know your parents who don't watch these kind of films watching two days one night yeah i don't know if i could w- imagine my mom watching rosetta and sitting through all of it because right. it's not you know it's not that kind of movie for her i mean i wish i had been able to watch more of these films that i want to know like what is their end point right now where they are like what kind of movies are they making i mean i haven't checked out tori and lokita i know that they're people really like yeah, that one yeah, yeah yeah i'm sure they will come back into favor I think, yeah, they've been a victim of their own success to some degree. Mm. They've certainly spawned a lot of imitators. Now, do I say I would like to see them do something a little bit different? A musical? Musical, absolutely. I did watch one of their early documentaries, Mm. and I got to say, not that good. Oh, really? What was it about? It was about pirate radio stations. So I was like, ooh, this will be interesting. They basically just present disconnected information in long static shots. Mm. So like, they have not found the style that they have made their own from when you say the Darden brothers just popped right into your mind. Mm-hmm. So this has been festival month. Did you learn anything about film festival directors? Will? Yeah, actually I was happy to reacquaint myself with the Dardans because it turns out I still like them. Mm-hmm. I was happy to visit with Patrick Tam who I was, uh, I would not visit in person. I visited with his films Yeah, and, and they're very good. Hong Sang Soo, I learned nothing about. No, I already, really? I, 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 already knew, I already knew what he was about, mm-hmm. but I was happy to spend some time with him as well. Uh, did you learn anything about the opening and closing film of the uh, Toronto International Film Festival? Nope, didn't learn a single thing. <laughs> no, basically just... So it's like it's like a film festival. Yes. That's but don't what... you want to be challenged when you go to a film festival? Should we have picked other directors? No, I don't. Th- I think we picked no. exactly the kind of... We had a nice cross-section, Section of all the kind of stuff that you, uh, I think you would expect when you Let's go to... Let's do a... this again next September. Okay, well, sounds good. September will now be festival months from now on, and we will... Vi- we- kind of chip away at what festival means just so we can kind of fit the things that we want to talk about into it. So do we have any letters? We do have letters. So as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Christopher and he goes, greetings, Justin and Will. Do you guys have any thoughts on documentarian critic Mark Cousins? His 15-hour documentary series, The Story of Film, rekindled my interest in movies during a period of post-college malaise, and it turned me on to a number of foreign filmmakers that I had never been exposed to up to that point. I don't hear this documentary or the work of Cousins brought up very often in film podcast universe. I currently waste so much time in, so I was wondering if you two true cinephiles had any opinions on the subject. I've been an avid ICC listener for years now. Thank you so much for this podcast chris did you watch the story of film i did i loved it i liked it yep i have some reservations oh what's that i i mean i love like the first half of it Mm. like he, I think he's. You know, what? I'm gonna be honest. I don't think I watch past like the first half. That's all I'm really interested. Okay, in. Okay, that's interesting because I think he's very good on the silent era mm. and y- yeah, like early early cinema in general. I feel like starting around 1960 or so, he starts to get a, w- a little wobbly and like he's he's obsessed with Baz Luhrmann for some reason. Really? Like, listen, he's he's just one man. Here's the thing: every academic though dealing with modern stuff, you often go like, why this? 
I love David Bordwell. His choices of modern Hong Kong films that he analyzes are baffling to me. Well, yeah, like he loves Baz Luhrmann so much. And I mean, look, Mark Cousins is only one man. He he has his perspective. Yeah, he, he can only speak from his perspective. Right. But I mean, the the story of film has the pretense of being more than that. Mm. And so and so therefore, when you're when you're coming as like, OK, this is the actual definitive story of film. We're showing you more story of film than ever. We're 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 forget all those other stories of films. This is the story of film. Then like okay. that becomes an issue. Well, has well, he the one who said that or has that been presented to you in that way? Well, the letter the, writer points out people don't really talk about his stuff that much. Well, I'll just say like there's that there's that early episode. I think in the first 15 minutes, he says something like so much of film history has been like incomplete and racist by omission. I think mm-hmm. were his terms, which he's correct about. And he does a very good job, especially in the early parts of the show, like like dealing with that. But I remember there comes there comes a point where he's talking about the French new wave which he is obviously not that into gets rid of it pretty quickly, which is fine. Mm-hmm. That's his perspective. Yeah. But like, there's a moment where Baz Luhrmann, who's one of the interviewees <laughs> fucking Baz Luhrmann about the French new wave. Yeah. Baz Luhrmann says, and I'm sorry if I'm misquoting him because I saw this 10 years ago, but Baz Luhrmann says words to the effect of, you know, the, the, the French new wave people thought they were, liberating themselves from the old cliches, you know, getting out into the streets. But when Godard uses a jump cut, that's a device. Okay? That's a device. That's artificial. And I don't know why I give him a British voice. He's Australian, yeah, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. Throw some good day, mate. And, and I remember thinking that, seeing that and thinking, how fucking dare you, Baz Luhrmann? What do so you think So basically, you, are? you were personally insulted by Baz Luhrmann razzing on the French New Wave. I was personally insulted. Not personally insulted. I took issue with. Uh, Sounds I, like a personal insult I, to me. I disagreed yes. with <laughs> that, followed by like practically a whole episode devoted to Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> it's like, okay, you don't have to like the French New Wave, but I'm telling you, it was more important than fucking Strictly Ballroom was. Mm-hmm. Fucking Moulin Rouge. Now, Mark Cousins has done two other series since then. He's did the story of women in film, mm-hmm. right? And the story of children in film. Oh, I have not checked them out, yeah. mostly for the main reason that I don't, I don't return to this very often. I think Mark Cousins, the worst thing he's ever done is giving people his voice to talk about. (laughs) I hate that. You hate the imitators. I even Mark cousins. Like it's so boring. Now, what is a good version of that? That's not Tavernier did his own stuff as well. There's like energy when he talks. You don't need to sound like me. Like you don't need to be energized for eight hours, but you gotta give me something that like, you're not like, and then we talked about like, make me feel like, involved bring me towards the thing that you're talking about right which okay. he does not do in his voiceover well fair enough oh you are you like the uh no i don't i don't i don't love his voice i don't know it's just and like everybody's ripped him off too yeah yeah i know i know what you're talking about for sure and so like that's one of the things that i think the scourge of the film essay uh, he has brought that now maybe people will point before like oh look we're gonna point to all the people who do good film essays yes and i'm that, sure they're and that's out there. fine they're yeah. excluded from this but why every time that i click on one is it like a mark, mark cousin's voice yeah and you know parodied by who did the one where it was like about powder remember oh the- <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that's right it was was that a click hole bit or- i don't know oh, no it was kentucker oddly. it was that's who it was kentucker oddly, who used yes. to do these really funny parody video essays mm-hmm. so that's all i can think about when Where's, i watch that talking about 
Tim Burton's powder. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, he called it Tim Burton's powder. Call, it's yeah. a Victor Salva film. but Yeah, we, we don't want to talk about Victor Salva. <laughs> but yeah, look so. up that Kentucky Oddly video about powder. Very but funny. is there value in that story? Absolutely. You know what I like about it? Get the book that he put out that has all that information, but in like a textbook format. So there was an interview with Pauline Kael and Jean-Luc Godard from 1980 or so. It was an, when Every Man for Himself came out. Mm -hmm. And they did an onstage discussion about it. And, you know, as you can imagine, Godard was his usual trickster self being completely ridiculous being completely unfair you know being a you know being the eric andre to her you know hapless guest yeah that's who jean luc godard is right the eric andre of the french new wave right. but at one point he said something like your review of my film and in fact all reviews of my film are unfair because they don't use footage from the film you can't actually convey what the film looks like and and pauline kale understandably is like Jean-Luc, uh, it's a written piece. I, I, I can't do it. But what he was doing was accidentally predicting the video essay. Yep. And in fact, he himself made History of Cinema. And I'm sure if you presented him with that, he would go, well, it's out of context, so it's not a fair review. I think that the reader or the viewer needs to watch the entire film to really right. get it. Very convenient, huh? Yeah. And maybe pay, pay for a ticket, Full too. of shit. Name of my new book coming out. But never, No, but here's the thing, though. He he lived his politics. He, he became like the progenitor of the video essay. Say. Oh, and we love them. And they made tons I, of sense, I, right? I, well, I mean, they're, you know what I'll say? No pretense to objectivity. <laughs> yes, which that's Mark, true. Which Mark Cousins sometimes has. Mm. But anyway, I don't mean to trash Mark Cousins. There's lots that's good in the story of film. Yeah, I and, mean, he did do like a 15-hour documentary for you to take one of one major affront of it, the <laughs> yeah. Baz Luhrmann of it all. I think well, it's pretty Well, safe. here we are 10 years later, and that's the part I remember. So. Like, but what about, like, I remember the first part, the, the, his deconstruction of silent film oh, is so good. The yeah. silent film stuff is fantastic. Yeah. Or even like dealing with international cinema which I'm like, I've never heard about some of this stuff. Like, make a big list. Well, it's true. I mean, he had a whole episode on Bollywood stuff, for instance, where he had Amitabh Bakchan. We should do just like watching all the story of film and do an episode on that. It gripes things that we like. I also say this knowing that anybody could listen to this podcast. Oh, and, and take exactly the same thing. <laughs> more than that. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's there's tons of stuff that I don't even stand by in this podcast. <laughs> so there you go. Do you think that if you got Mark Cousins on the street and he's like, I heard what you think about a Baz Luhrmann and that you don't like him and Mark Cousins is like I'm doubling down on it my next documentary all about Baz Luhrmann I'd film. shake his hand and I'd say you know what I, I you got me I respect that and I'd also say why are you yelling at me you're much more successful than me because <laughs> that's what it is Will it's the little guys I come for the big dogs that's what makes me angry that's how right. dare you that's right so that, you see I'm talking so frankly about Mark Cousins because, because you know he won't listen to because this because I don't consider him a colleague because <laughs> he's way more successful than us yeah, that's right <laughs> so thank you very much for that letter our next one from brandon and he goes dear important cinema clubbers as i listen through the back catalog you often joke about certain episodes being unpopular by download count and these are always my favorite episode episodes about women and filmmakers of color yes basically those are yeah. the ones that get the less downloads. sorry i hate to say it folks <laughs> how, how about you people live your politics start clicking on those episodes i am obsessed with the international and non-commercial film and appreciate the thoughtful way you guys engage with the work so please keep doing them we love doing them i love it, it allows us to discover new stuff Earlier that year, I went to a screening of Beau Travail local cinema, and I was absolutely convinced the theater would be packed to the brim. I was very 
very anxious about it, only to find that there were at most 15 of us total at the screening. I had to laugh at myself for totally misreading what is and isn't popular. When you do Claire Denis, I highly recommend the book Intimacy of the Border by Marjorie Vecchio. Are you surprised sometimes when you go to art house screenings and you're like, this will be so packed and then there's like nobody there? Oftentimes it's the opposite. Sometimes I'll go and I'll be surprised that it is packed. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, wow, look at all these people. This is wild. I mean, earlier this year, I went to see Jean Dielman at the TIFF Lightbox. They sold out Cinema 2, you know? Wow, it did. Is this post? It's the new greatest film of all time. But then again, it's like still like that many people want to watch a movie where a woman just does household chores for four hours. Had a great time, by the way. Mm -hmm. The letter writer continues. Do you guys ever run low on topic ideas or do you have an ever-increasing list i have plenty of homework options i could send you away we have a gigantic list you do not need to send us anything else we have a gigantic list although i will say that we've definitely burned through a lot of the easy ones oh yeah so a lot of the time it's like boy that's a lot of work can we find one that's work but less work than that one please we do have certain topics that we've never done and it's almost like like we've never done stanley kubrick we're never going to do stanley kubrick right yeah no we never done an episode on the films of Martin Scorsese. That's right. Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton. Never done. We'll definitely do a Buster Keaton yeah. at some point. You know, Blank Check went through his entire filmography. We can't touch that for 10 years now. Them's the rules. Wouldn't it be great to do that? Like Blank Check, they have, like, you just talk about popular movies that people want to hear about. That's how you get the listens, right? You know, you know what I thought was funny about Blank Check? And I've actually never heard Blank Check. Oh, I like the podcast. I listen yeah, to it every yeah. week. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure it's wonderful. I did think it was funny when they were doing like, like a March Madness thing where it's like you, they, they were pitting different international filmmakers against each other and whoever won the March Madness would would win and they do a topic they they do that filmmaker and then you see the first round is like Usman Semben versus Bong Joon Ho. I it's wonder like, who's gonna take oh, that. Oh yeah, one. yeah. Well, <laughs> sorry, we can't do Usman Semben. <laughs> so our se- fans voted, and then so they do Park Chan Wook at the end of it, and then they're like, "What do we do next?" Ah, uh, David Fincher, I guess. But right. that's what you got to do, right? Because we pe- do we do some of those sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. But what if we just did a year of the popular? <laughs> We're doing a blank check format, movie by movie. What now, if we every did? Week. What if we did Popular Month at some point? <laughs> Because we haven't done Fincher yet. We have tried to do like, wasn't it like, oh, we do the popular blockbuster month, I think I called it, where we do the popular do stuff. blockbuster month? Yeah, I believe we did at some what point. What did we do? I don't remember. Doesn't but it matter. was like all popular stuff to get those listens after challenging people with stuff like, uh, I don't know, I'd have to look through the important cinema club. Did you, someone posted a nice review where they're like, listening through the entire catalog, you can see Will rediscover his love of cinema again. I mean, I, th- I feel like I've always loved cinema, but that's, that's nice to <laughs> To hear that i that i've only loved it more so you can get the character journey of will sloan so in the biopic about our, the movie <laughs> our lives that'll be the journey of will like you know from the bitter irony poison young man into the old you know gentle grandpa of the important cinema <laughs> club <laughs> I, every movie has something good about it not true <laughs> no that's not true i mean i mean i've heard from a certain podcast that there's no such thing as a bad movie <laughs> and then every time i say oh this movie's so bad people are like what you said it you said it parody parody satire satire so thank you very much for those letters what are we doing on our patreon this week will we are returning okay well we just did an episode where we talk about expendables 4 mm. which we went to see in a theater yes and so you'll be able to hear that but then we also did an episode talking about stuff that we've seen recently mm-hmm. including a deep dive into Ernest Scared Stupid. Yeah, we have not talked about it enough, have we? Yeah. <laughs> Even though we have a whole episode dedicated to I Ernest. I love talking about Ernest. You know, we need to return Ernest again when we hit that 400 episode mark and we start redoing episodes. <laughs> like, Ernest, fruitful right there and then. I wonder, is that, I don't even think the marathon episode we did is still up 
because I took them down after a month. That well, was a good one. When let's we put suffered. it back up. Why not? No. No. no we're going to have to. We got to squeeze that juice as we have the stuff that's unavailable. And the, you know, fabled Some War episodes never came out. The Steve Odenkirk Some movies. Oh, yeah. Always- okay. I'll explain this. For years, we were saying if we if we hit a certain number of patrons. Yeah. We would do an episode on all of the Thumb movies yes, by we'd Steve watch them all. You know, like the Blair Thumb, Star Thumb, or whatever. You remember those? Yep. You, were, you were in Blockbuster in the 90s, mm-hmm. and we never, we've never got there. Wait, did I tell you how I would do that episode? I'll tell you off, Mike, but I had a plan on, on how to do it. On drugs. <laughs> yes, that's right. We would have to get real high on acid. Remember, as my dad said, don't use acid two days in a row because it won't have the same effect. Mm. So, you know, we'll have to try to squeeze it all. There's so many Thumb movies, too. Oh. You know, I just thought of a great Shocktober topic that I don't know how we've never done. Horror spoofs. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is dead. We should do Holly Shore's Blair Witch that's, parody. Wh- that's what I was thinking. The bogus yeah. witch project. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll do okay. that. But next week, we do have a topic. We will be it's talking- Shocktober. Oh! <laughs> So we'll be talking about, we're getting the franchise right off the ground. We try to do one every month. but Every year. Every year, yeah. It'll be the Mr. Vampire franchise. Only technically official Mr. Vampire film. So Mr. Vampire 1 to 4. And then in that set, there's Vampire vs. Vampire, the one that Arrow put out. I don't know if that counts with it. How about Mr. Vampire 1992? Is that an official one? I don't know, but I, it, it depends on who produced it or who directed it. So we'd have to check that out. So yeah, Mr. Vampire is one of the iconic Hong Kong film franchises. Horror comedies popularized the hopping vampire genre. Yeah. And a lot of them are on the Criterion channel right th- right now. Are they? They're on there? So. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's what we'll be talking about next week. Until then, my name's Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Hello, as per usual, I would like to thank some of our new patrons who include Jay Gill, Devin Border, Tom Meager, Uncle Frankie, Nick Bush, Aris Giannopoulos, John Van Atta, David Watkins, David Rayneck. Andy Rothroyal, Greg McDonald, Rice Murphy, and Evan M. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. And don't forget, clear your schedule for the weekend of October 21st, because that's when we're doing the important Cinema Club Horror Movie Mind Melter. Starting at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, there is going to be 24 hours of horror movies picked by me, Justin Clue, that I hope you can join in and just experience all the mind-melting goodness you can handle hope to see you there hey will how many blu-rays did you buy this month oh my god so listen let's talk about this vinegar syndrome yes so we yeah we're specifically talking about them so vinegar syndrome is a company that puts out many releases every month they are a dream company they do stuff that i never would imagine would get these big special editions and now they have all these partner labels they have the separate site now that does their adult titles oh i mean you love it right oh i mean yeah <laughs> oh we're gonna get into it but like we're, we're setting stuff up here so the partner labels you know they put out like 15 movies a month through that plus mm. another like five yeah it's about 20 releases a month yeah and some of them listen this is why i want to bring this up they're so expensive yes like we're getting to that physical media like plate where 
And anyone who's listened to me on the Bay Street Video Podcast has heard me say this every week. Because when we go on Bay Street Video Podcast through the Blu-rays we're talking about, we have them in front of us. And I see the prices when I start. And I always go, oh, my God. Like, that, that's wild. So Vinegar Syndrome just announced that they're putting out Mark of the Devil on a 4K Blu-ray. Okay. Now, what you're looking at is the Canadian prices. Because it am. switches over. Right. So we're saying this in Canadian prices. Canadian prices, the suggested retail price is $89.76. <laughs> That's not, they're never at that price, ever. Well, the reason that's the suggested retail price is so that when they do their half-off sale, yes. you're paying $43, yep. which is just what, what it, it would what usually it, cost. Yeah, which is already too expensive. Mm-hmm. So at, at the end of the day, like what we're trying to say, like we're trying to get the, these very successful companies to drop their prices a little bit, I guess. Please. Yeah. You know, at the end of I'm the day. I'm not made of money. No. So we're getting to the point. I want to support. I'm not going to lie. This like slate of release of Vinegar Syndrome, I looked at all of them, the partner labels, the normal ones, and I went, I'm not buying anything this month. Good for you. This has never happened in three, four years. I mean, that's that's a sign of maturity more mm. than anything. I even, is, it, is it because you're just getting harder to, to please? Like, what's going I on? I think it's a little bit of this. I also think that they're reaching that point that I've been talking about two years, so it doesn't really matter. Where it's like, there's no more movies left. Because <laughs> we've talked about this before, right? That, like, anytime companies do announcements, we're like, me and Will will send this image of the bottom of the barrel to, to each <laughs> other. Like, oh my god you know it doesn't need to be for us but it is a little bit dispiriting that i guess you can only have a good thing for so long before you reach you know there's limits to things i was amused by a few months ago vinegar syndrome put out a three pack of category three hong kong horror films yeah and you know they did the three pack presumably because who would buy these movies separately i got it i watched one of the movies and you're like it's bad it's bad yeah and now they're putting out like movies like that individually because yeah, they, they decided they like oh people will pay for them individually right so we don't need to put them in three packs and justin you and i have to take a stand because we're those people yes well i didn't buy the last horror the, one they yeah, did yeah because yeah. i was like don't i already have a pregnancy-based horror one that i haven't watched yet that some company released like yeah yeah and i mean vinegar syndrome their own like why are prices going up? Is it just that they're realizing that people will continue to buy this stuff? I think in some cases, yeah. yeah. But because, also, it's like more of a niche market now. Yeah, but it's, it was a niche market, probably the same niche market it was a year ago, right? Mm, yeah. Like, can they continue to squeeze their audience? Like, I've been seeing letterbox reviews of people going like, man, Vinger Syndrome has been really like whiffing on like a bunch of releases lately. Like, when do you stop going... I'm not getting this because like it's just too much. Like I still see on all the social media things, people get really excited for these releases and good for them. You know what else I get? Are we too grizzled and like we've been in these trenches too long? Something else I get a little tired of is Criterion. Yeah, they stink. They're they're real bad right now. They are bad. They Mm. don't. They're like they're actually not as good as you know. Sometimes I like Kino has a better slate than Criterion does. They do. And you know what's wild about Criterion is like I bought the version of the trial they put out. It yeah. is such a low effort release of them being like, oh, we got a new Jim McBride commentary, I guess. You hogs this is all you get. Well, lo- lucky that there's a commentary. And do you know how much it is? It's like $50 I for know. the 4K of the trial. Yeah. I understand that the audience is shrinking, but it feels like that audience shrunk five years ago. Mm-hmm. And like, but you're squeezing these and inflation. Yes, it's bad. I understand. But like, if you look even at the Vinegar Syndrome, you're paying 10 extra dollars for those sleeves that they come in. Also, I don't want to say that Criterion does bad work mm. because they, they do a lot of good work. But I do think it's funny that they do all those Netflix and like they're basically they've become, you know, just a marketing arm for the streaming services. Yes. I mean, Criterion has been 
it's existed for so long. We've complained about them before. And look, they have an office in Manhattan. It yes. takes a lot of money. And then they only have half the staff that they used to have as well. And I understand that those like Netflix releases they do sell very well. Yes. Because every library buys them. But that's the thing, right? So like Vinegar Syndrome, you understand that like some of these releases, even if we're like, why are they putting that out? That pays the bills because people buy them. Right. Which allows them to do, you know, the stuff that doesn't sell that well. I am a little bit disappointed, probably because they're forced to do it every month. But like Agfa does a lot of re-releases of like, oh, they're putting out under with a slipcase. Oh, what is it? It's the one with the sheep monster in it. The Beast of Yucca Flats? Oh, God Monster of God Indian monster. Flats. Yeah, 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 that's right. And like that one, I'm like, well, I bought that already. But you know what? Well, Maybe people didn't of, get a it's chance. It's been out of print for a while. Exactly. Yeah. So bring it back in print. That's it's a good movie. God Monster of Indian Flats. $20 more. Yeah. But like even stuff that in the past I would have bought without blinking, when it comes out now, I'm like, do I need that? Like the Flesh Trilogy, Roberta Finley and Michael Finley's, the three films they made together. I looked at it and I went, eh, I don't need that. Like That's a sign of maturity, I mm-hmm. would say. That's if good. it was packed with commentaries, with people that I would want to hear from, but like it has an interview with Roberta Finley. I love her. I have tons of commentaries she's done that I haven't listened to. And the reality is she doesn't like talking about those movies, mm-hmm. especially the Michael Finley ones. Like, ugh, I'm sure she doesn't have many uh, positive thoughts about that kind of stuff. So at the end of the day, you know, I, I feel that like they're just it's too expensive. I can't afford it. I'm glad and I wish I'm I could. glad you're saving money. Yes, I am. I would like to be purchasing this stuff, though, because it, like the Curse of the Screaming Dead release they did last month dream release my like oh my god i can't believe that they're doing that when will they stop like is there a, an upmost limit do you think where they go like you know we're pulling back we're releasing less well i think the market will dictate that mm. and do you think i mean they're basically the ones in control of that market did right you see now. the vinegar syndrome is building its own video store in toronto yes it it is it's yeah. opening right across from the review i will definitely be visiting yeah, it pretty exciting but at the same time as well if you you know what you look at shout factory they are a company that is hemorrhaging right now because they cannot compete with the other companies they are swarming the market with shaw brothers box sets only to get ahead of the other companies doing it like i I have two of their Shaw Brothers box set, I would not be buying the third or fourth mm-hmm. because I'm like, it's too much. Can't it's too up. fast. Can't keep up. Why do we have to keep doing that? Mm-hmm. Now, maybe there's young people who are flush with money, just like all the young people are, right? <laughs> yeah. Just can't have enough that they're like, well, I'll be buying all of these, but not me. It makes me sad. I think we should get free stuff. Yes, I do. You know what company keeps knocking above their weight gold ninja video now that's i'm right. buying all of their releases that's right and what's that they're trying to do two a month oh too much can't afford those 